want to tell you, as I shared last week, James has a special place in your pastor's heart. About 16 or 17 years ago, I I couldn't pinpoint the exact time of when it took place. Uh, I was a young man here, uh, never thinking at that point that God was going to be calling me to be a preacher and a a minister, not only in the church altogether, but that God would call me to the very church I grew up in. That, That was just not even in the cards. I was enjoying my first years of being married to Amanda, and uh, we were looking forward to the birth of our first son. And I remember the pastor at the time pulled me aside, and he did the thing that I know you all are scared to death that I will do. You get pulled aside on a Sunday, and he says, hey, I'd like to talk with you, Tim. I said, okay, pastor, what what can I do for you? He says, we want to see a young married Sunday school class get started, and we think you're the guy to teach it. I said, okay, okay, no. I said, listen, pastor, I've never taught from the Bible before. You're going to, we're going to create a cult or something if you get me starting to teach the Bible. He says, no, he says, the elders have been talking, we're really encouraged about, about your zeal and your fire for the Lord, and we would really like you to uh, teach uh, in a couple of weeks uh, from a, a book of the Bible. And I says, well, what book of the Bible would you want me to preach? I, I've never done this before. And they said, we want you to teach on the book of James. And I remember I got in the car and I told Amanda, can you believe these crazy people want me to teach them the Bible? Well, what are you going to teach, Tim? Well, he told me the book of James. And I remember that day, and I was a follower of Jesus Christ. I was enjoying my walk with Jesus Christ. But, but I want to tell you, something special happened. And I remember when I sat down the very first time to, to study, to teach this passage uh, before us, the book of James a fire was lit inside of me. And I remember seeing the scriptures in a way I'd never seen before. And, and because of God's spirit and the patience of those wonderful young people, some of you who have stuck with me all these years, uh, created a gifting and a calling uh, of teaching God's word and, and being one who is changed by it each and every week as I teach it. And the book of James is a special place in my heart because of that. And I pray that that blessing that the book of James and the study of God's word had on my life would be an impact and encouragement to you in these next couple months that we study this five-chapter book that I believe can, in fact, change your life. Uh, one of the things that I want to make you aware of in your bulletins, uh, we put an insert in, in, in most of them. We uh, didn't put them in every one, I don't think, but each family should have gotten at least one, is an insert, uh, and it's it got Village Bible Church's logo on it, and, and on it it says, Why We Preach Through Books of the Bible. And I would really encourage you uh, to take a moment, it's very short, just a couple pages long, uh, to, to read and go through this, not during the sermon, please, but at some point, uh, to read through it. Because here is the purpose and plan that your elders have, and, and my goal, how I'm evaluated, if you will, as a preacher, as to how we will preach. This, uh, um, every uh, week as we're heading to church, the Bidal family, I will always, they always want to listen to music, and, and I want to kind of get my mind focused on preaching, and I'll tune into a particular radio preacher for a couple moments. And, and that radio preacher always, always is railing about something political. He's always about something. And so I turn it on and this morning and he's railing about President Obama and he's just really letting him have it. And, and my son Luke's sitting in the back seat and goes, Dad, doesn't this guy know that President Obama's done? 
And we laughed, and, and yet some will say, why aren't we talking about current events? Why aren't we talking about the political landscape? Why aren't we talking about all these different social ills? Why is it, Tim, you don't preach from the headlines of the newspaper? Because we were told in Scripture not to preach the headlines, not to preach what I saw on the Hallmark Network yesterday. I don't watch the Hallmark Network. But to preach the Word of God. And we're to teach the Word of God, and this will help you to understand why we do that. Just a couple things. Uh, we call that expositional preaching. Expositional preaching, if you're following along, is at its simplest, preaching that is focused on explaining the meaning of Scripture in its historical and grammatical context. What we want to get to in our times together, what I want to get to in the book of James, is to help you understand today that you're reading someone else's mail. Okay, we're picking up the letter of James that wasn't written to us at first. We can apply it to our lives. But if we want to get all that we need to out of this book, we need to understand the person that wrote it, why he wrote it, to whom he wrote it to, the context of what's going on. And we got to be careful that we don't put our 21st century spin on a first century letter. And so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, expose what the text is saying and draw the meaning from the text so that we can understand it. And there's some reasons why we do it. Number one, we say it's biblical. The Bible shows us over and over again that it's biblical. And so what we're going to do in the book of James, as we've done with dozens of other books in the Bible, is we start at James chapter 1, verse 1, and we don't finish our time until we get to the end of the letter and we close it out. Because listen, we want to preach the Bible just as the Word was written first by the words of God and by the hands of men. And so that is our goal, our desire. That's what I want to accomplish here. Uh, and so uh, just for those, we know we have a lot of new people, and they may say, why don't you just preach on different topics? Why don't you just preach on this issue or that issue? The reason why is we believe God has given us this great love letter, and we want to preach it just as he wrote it and uh, gave it to men. And so take some time to look at that. I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but a great reference to why we preach and why we teach the way that we do. So take some time to look at that. But we come to the book of James. And the book of James starts out in James chapter 1. And, and what we're going to do today is uh, an introduction. There's going to be a lot of information I'm going to give you today. There's not going to be a whole lot of massive application uh, that will come from it. But I think there are some truths that will encourage your hearts. I think there will be some truths that will challenge us in our thinking. But more than anything this morning, I want to make sure that we prepare ourselves and prepare the foundation of what God is going to teach us starting next week and and then the weeks to come about what the book of James has to offer us the people of God and so let me read from James chapter 1 we're just going to address the first verse this morning and there's a lot to draw out from this in James chapter 1 we are told the following James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you, and as we embark on another series, we pray that just as you've done so often in our other series, that you would change us and make us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we learn about this faithful and, and incredibly godly man, that you would show us what it means to live for you. 
We're going to learn about this man and we're going to learn of even some of the struggles and, and, and skepticism that he had early in his life. And we might be reminded of our own journey to God. Uh, we're going to learn about a man who came to know you later in his life. And for some, that's their testimony. Some are here right now who have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who have never given their lives over to him. And Lord, James may be a reminder that when we meet Jesus Christ face to face, when we experience his love and his mercy and his grace, that even as older individuals with a lot of years logged behind us, that we can still experience your salvation. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this man. Thank you for these Christians who are a great example to us so that we now, 2,000 years later, can be changed, revitalized, and given a hope for the future of what you have for us. Teach us as our great teacher, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In James chapter 1, we are brought to uh, the first part of the phrase that I want to address. And I want to address it through three points this morning that I think are important. And just so you know how long this thrill ride is going to go, my first point, really, really long, really, really long. You're going to be like, okay, when's this plane landing? I want you to know we're going to hit 30,000 feet, and we're going to stay at 30,000 feet, and then the bottom's going to drop out from under you, okay? Because we're going to land this thing hard and fast. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do, so don't worry about when we're going to get out of here. I'll get you out in plenty of time, okay? So the first thing we want to look at this morning is James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to ask the question this morning, uh, who, who's writing this letter? And we're going to learn this morning that this letter was written by a humble servant. By a humble servant. This letter doesn't come out of thin air. There's an author behind it. And in first century letters, uh, the author would always put his name at the beginning of the letter, not at the end. Opposite of what you and I do in our own letters. You see, we put our letters at the end, putting all the needed information uh, at the beginning. But what he does is he does what most biblical authors do, and that is puts his name at the beginning. I want you to know who this is from. I don't want there to be any question. It is James who is writing. Now, once we get to the point that, okay, we understand it's James, the question is, which James? You see, the Bible speaks of uh, about four or five different Jameses uh, in the Scripture. Some were really well known, others, their name is mentioned, but we know nothing more about them. And so the question is, who is this James, and, and what do we know about him? And so there's some debate about which James wrote it. So let's look and understand a couple of them. First of all, some think that this James is the brother of John. James and John were disciples of Jesus Christ. They were called the sons of thunder, okay? And uh, they were the ones that kind of always got be- with Peter. They were kind of the, the three-legged stool of the leadership of the disciples. You had Peter, you had James, you had John. And James and John always seemed to have kind of a quarreling attitude amongst themselves. Uh, They were the ones that always wanted to know who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Their mom, they were mama's boys, they sent their mom to Jesus and said, hey, when you get into your kingdom, Jesus, will you place a a place at your right hand and at your left hand for my two sons? Can they have the place of honor? And Jesus tells them that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you can't have your mom ask you for that place but you need to be a servant of all. 
And some say that the James that is being spoken of here is this James, the brother of John, one of the key people within the inner circle of Jesus' life and ministry. The problem with that is, is that there, there's a lot of speculation that it would have said James, an apostle of Jesus Christ, like Peter did, like John, his brother did. When they wrote letters, he would have put in that phrase that he was an apostle, a designation, not a position of pride, but just saying, listen, I, I've been a part of the inner sanctum of Jesus' ministry. I've seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I'm, I'm a part of this, and this is my title. The other problem with believing that this is the case is that James died very early in the life of the early church. He was one of the first martyrs uh, to lose his life for his faith. And, and, and there's some things in our study that are going to say that this book was written after that James, the brother of John, the disciple of Jesus, uh, would have been written. And so we're going to cross that off and say that's probably not that James. Now we go to the second James and we say, could it be James, another disciple, an apostle, who is known as the son of Alphaeus? And just like that, we, we don't know much about this James. We know he was a disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ, but there's very little, really there's nothing said about him except for in the set of names that, of the disciples that are given. James, the son of Alphaeus, is always listed as one of the disciples. Now here's the problem. It doesn't seem likely that this James is the author uh, because, again, there's, there's not much said. There's not much, and that doesn't mean that you couldn't have written a book of the Bible, but most of the writers of the book, especially of the New Testament, were men, key men and figures within the church um, that had areas of leadership, and we don't see any of that with James, the son of Alphaeus. So that leads us to the third and most likely scenario, is that the writer of this book uh, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James is the half-brother of of Jesus. Early church agrees and ascribes to the book of James, the brother of Jesus, as its author. This James was a prominent man within the life and times of the New Testament church. This man grew up with Jesus as his older brother. He was converted after Jesus' resurrection, immediately began associating with the apostles and became the presiding elder <clears throat> At the Jerusalem Council, which was the first council where the churches got together and talked about uh, being a, a, a Jewish kind of sect of Christians that now was seeing Gentile, non-Jewish people come into the faith and in belief of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And James in Acts 15 has a massive role and place as the leader of that. And, and because of these truths, we believe, as the early church did and as uh, most do, this is by by far the prevailing understanding of who wrote the book of James, that this is the James that we're talking about. Now, when I talk about James being the half-brother of Jesus, I throw a whole bunch, you may not know it, but elephants into the room. There's elephants running all around here right now. And I want to address each of the elements uh, and elephants that are being uh, tossed around here. Because when we talk about Jesus, I'm sorry, James is the half-brother of Jesus, we start getting into a place where many of us as Christians have never really thought about. We've never really thought about Jesus' early life. 
You see, the, the creeds, if you grew up in, in more mainline denominations or, or were a part of a creedal church, the early church creeds would tell us that uh, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And, and then what happens next? What does the creed say? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Wait a minute. He was born and then he suffered. Where's all the in-between information? We have very little to walk away from that helps us to understand the early life of Jesus and his family. But as we look throughout scripture, as I'm going to show you this morning, there's a bevy of information about Jesus' early life and about what it would have been like to have a sibling as the savior of the world. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Now the first question is, why the half-brother? Why the half-brother? It's an easy uh, answer, but it's a miraculous one. Let us be reminded and let us go back to our Christmas celebration and of the songs that we've sung and, and all of that. Let's be reminded that Jesus had as his mother Mary, but as his father, not Joseph, but God our Father in heaven. We call that the virgin birth. The incarnate conception. And we recognize that, that while Joseph was the, if you will, adopted father of Jesus, that he was not a part of that union that brought forth Jesus into the world. Turn in your Bibles for a moment, uh, if you will, to the book of Matthew. I'm sorry, to the book of Luke. We'll get to Matthew in a moment. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 through 35. I want to share these things with you. So if you are a note taker, write these passages down because they'll be helpful. I'm getting to the page to tell you what page number it is. Luke chapter 1 is found on page 855 in the Pew Bibles. Page 855. And we've got the story of Mary being told by Gabriel the angel that she is going to be with child even though she's not had relations with any men. And in uh, Luke chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 26 through 35, we're told this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern um, <clears throat> what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, <clears throat> you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary asks the legitimate question. She says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so we have what is called the annunciation uh, of uh, the announcement of Gabriel saying, Mary, even though you haven't been with a man, you're about to be pregnant. And in this pregnancy, you need to recognize that what God is doing is a miraculous thing. He is bringing the Messiah, the Son of God, into the world through you as the channel or, or uh, a vehicle 
of bringing God into flesh so that he would have his dwelling uh, among us. And so we see uh, a couple things. We, we talk about this being the virgin birth. Notice three times the word virgin is there. And if you don't know what that word means, talk to your mom or dad or talk to your pastor and I'll explain it to you later. Okay? She had not been with a man. And she's about to uh, be with child. And, and what we see is that Joseph's ready to divorce her. Right? You're dating a girl. And everything's going great. And then she comes up to you. You guys go out for a nice dinner and a movie. And that's what Mary did, right? And they go out and they watch the new Sing uh, movie. And Mary says, hey, uh, right as the previews are starting, I, I need to talk with you, Joseph. Um, I'm pregnant. What do you mean you're pregnant? We've just held hands. How can you be pregnant? Where have you been? Who's the dad? I know I'm not. Who, who did this? And then your girlfriend looks to you and says, um, an angel came to me and said that I'm pregnant with God's son. I've heard a lot of excuses for things, right? But surely that's not an excuse that would work. But that's what Mary says. And Joseph's like, you're a crazy woman. I'm so glad that we haven't consummated this marriage because I can still get out. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I, I like you, Mary. You're a great lady. But you've made one massive mistake. And that massive mistake is going to wreak havoc in your life for years to come. And so I'm going to divorce you quietly, the scripture says. And I'll go on my merry way. But then an angel appears in a dream to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. Matthew 1, verse 25. That's on page, I'll tell you here in a second, 807, page 807 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 1, verse 25. He says, all in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. What had happened? Notice that the angel said, uh, do not fear, verse, uh, let's see here, 20, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. All this was to plan, took place to fulfill the plan of the Lord spoken by the prophets. Now, when... Joseph wakes from sleeping, verse 24. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but notice this phrase, and this is an important one. We'll come back to it in a moment. But he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Just really quickly, uh, the term to know her. Listen, Joseph doesn't have dementia like, who are you? I've never seen you before. The phrase to know somebody within a husband and wife scenario, speaking of relations of intimacy between the husband and wife. They did not have physical relations until after the birth of Jesus. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, here's what we need to understand. Joseph and Mary, after Jesus is born... Do what God commands all couples to do since the book of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, okay? And, and that's what they do. And, and they do that after, if you will, the birth of Jesus. Now, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 for a moment. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to learn a little bit more. So what do we know about Jesus? Do they 
Do they name any of the brothers, half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus? Tim, where are you coming up with this? Mark chapter 6, starting on, uh, that'll be on page 841 in your pew Bible, page 841. Now notice, this is Jesus. Now Jesus is old. He's 30 years of age now. He is starting his earthly ministry. And we get a snapshot of, of maybe who some of these kids were. It says, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogues. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? And they go like this, because they're hometown people. They hung around Jesus early on. And they ask the question. They say, hey, wait a minute. Is this Jesus not the son of the carpenter? Who's the carpenter? Joseph. Isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? We, we used to hang out in his workshop. He, he built our Pinewood Derby cars for the Boy Scouts in Awana, right? We were there. We know his dad. And then it goes on and says, don't we know his mom is Mary? And he goes on, they go on and say, don't we know that he, this Jesus is the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, not the Judas who betrayed Jesus, by the way, and Simon? So we've got Jesus, oldest brother of Mary and Joseph. They live in Nazareth. Joseph's a carpenter. Joseph has, Joseph has the adopted son of Jesus. And then after Jesus is born, we recognize that Joseph and Mary start having sons, four to be exact. And then it says, notice in there, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and even in his own household. So let's stop there. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But just to give you a picture of Jesus' family, we got Joseph and Mary. We got Jesus, who is now the stepson, if you will, of Joseph. But then underneath that or behind that, is now four brothers and at least, what I learned in English class, when there's an S at the end of sister, it means more than one, it's at least two. So when Joseph and Mary drove into church on a Sunday morning, I'm being facetious a bit, they drove in in a 15-passenger van, okay? They were like the mini version of the Duggars, okay? I thought that'd be funnier. I They would laugh at that one, but okay, it's early. And so... Some of you have been a Christian for a long time, so you've been in the church for a long time, and you've never thought about, what about Jesus' life? And it paints a whole new picture for you about what we can understand and know about Jesus. Elephant number two that I want to talk about. Not all of Christianity would be okay with this first statement that I have on the screen. Uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox individuals would take an offense, or at least a minimum an affront, to this statement. Because they would say, wait a minute, Tim, we've got a problem with this. Because our belief and our understanding as the church has grown in years and, and as we've lear- looked and searched out tradition and understanding, as we put together our theology on Jesus and his birth and on the person of Mary and the, her role within that, there is no way that Jesus was ever going to have any brothers or sisters. 
That in fact, when we read about brothers and sisters in the scripture, it doesn't really mean brothers and sisters, even though uh, the phrase there in the Greek is Adelphoi, uh, which is uh, where we get the phrase Philadelphia, which is where we translate that word to be a place of brotherly love. That though they were called Adelphois, that, that they weren't brothers and sisters, but probably close relations like cousins. Now, why would they say that? Why would they not take a natural reading of the text and of the word Adelphoi in the scriptures and, and receive that as James is the half-brother of Jesus along with these other siblings? Number one, their belief is that Jesus was born of Mary, their fine virgin birth, everything's fine there. But Mary remained a perpetual virgin after the birth of Jesus. That she never had relations with Joseph. And because of that, Jesus is the only child of, of the family. They, they only had one child and, and that was it. And so they would say, okay, these are cousins that they're talking about. But I want to tell you why I don't agree with that and why evangelicals don't agree with that. And here, here are a couple of reasons why. Number one, number one, it tells us in Matthew 125 that Joseph did not know Mary, did not have relations with Mary until the birth of Jesus. It doesn't say that he never had relations, it just said he didn't have them until the birth of Jesus. Number two, to say that Mary would withhold intimacy from her husband would go against every command in the, both the Old and New Testament for a husband and wife to share intimacy with one another and not to deprive one another of that, of that grace that God has given married couples. Number three... Uh, it would begin to elevate Mary to a place beyond what Scripture says about her. Okay? We begin to start making Mary more than what she is. Now listen, Mary's a phenomenal woman. She is to be blessed among all women, as the uh, angel Gabriel says. But she's not superhuman. And we need to be careful that we don't start separating, as some of these churches do, Mary out and putting a spotlight on her that the scriptures never tell us it needs to happen. And quite frankly, our theology tells us doesn't need to be done. So why do these churches do it? I believe that while their intentions may be noble, their theology is wrong. Number one, they seek to set apart the birth of Jesus Christ from all of the births. Jesus is special, and he is special. Jesus is great, and he is great. There's nothing like the birth of Jesus that the world has ever seen or ever will see. It is a miraculous birth, never to be duplicated or repeated. But we don't have to make Mary something that she isn't to fulfill that. There's enough of the miracle that we have in the virgin birth to take care of that. Number two, number two... It begins to set Mary apart from every other member of the human race. And we don't need to do that. Mary recognizes that she is a humble servant before the Lord, used by God to be the mother of the second person of the Trinity. And that's okay. She should be praised for that. And she should, she should be uh, given uh, accolades about that. But we don't need to worship her. We don't need to pray to her. We don't need to do any of that. Because like you and I, she was a sinner in need of her son's grace. Just like you and I. And so we need to recognize that's the second elephant. Now, this is what makes the reading and the studying of James so awesome. 
Because we learned that Jesus had brothers. Now, uh, some of you have run into my parents at a store or at some event, and, and my parents always say, I ran into so-and-so from your church. I say, oh, what'd they say? Oh, the, and it's always the same story. They always ask us, Tim, if you truly did all of those crazy things that you did. And they ask, how in the world did you parent a kid like that? You know, how would you do that? Now, why do you ask those questions of my parents? Because there's an indispensable truth. If you really want to know somebody, get to know their family, right? And so we want to get to know Jesus in our study of Scripture. And so then the question is, how do we know his family? So that brings us to the third elephant in the room. And that is, what would it have been like to have Jesus as a sibling? What would it have been like? I'm sure it must have been crazy. So let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Amanda has done a great job of chronicling our three boys' um, uh, entrance into this world. From the pregnancy, uh, through the delivery, to the first steps and first words and first uh, uh, moments of, of each of the boys' lives. And at, at each birthday, inevitably one of the boys will grab their birth book and bring it out and, and we'll talk about the day and we'll talk about the events and we'll look at the pictures and we'll, we'll laugh at at something in there. Now, I want you to imagine, it's always a great time, but I want you to imagine you're in Jesus' family. And it's Jesus' birthday. And they bring out the birth book. And, and the birth book comes out, and Mary starts saying, this was so wonderful. I remember when I first found out I was going to be pregnant, I heard from an angel. And, and, and Dad heard from an angel, too. And then I went and visited uh, my cousin Elizabeth. You guys know Elizabeth. And as soon as I walked in the room and, and she heard my, my coming, the baby in Elizabeth's womb started swirling around. I mean, Jesus just had that impact on people. And then, and then we had to go for the census and we had to go to Bethlehem and, and we did that long journey and there was no place in the inn and so we found this manger and we have the baby and, 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 and then some shepherds show up. And they say they saw angels, and that angels talked about that your brother Jesus was going to show up. And then a couple years later, some Assyrians, good-looking Assyrians, came from Far East, and they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they worshipped your brother. And James raised his hand, hey mom, can we pull out your birth, my birth book? Yeah, but nothing really happened. I mean, how many of you are, are uh, younger brothers or sisters? Raise your hand. You think you live in a shadow? I mean, think about your parents every time you go out with Jesus. Okay, make sure you watch Jesus. Keep track of Jesus. Think about when you fight with Jesus. But mom, Jesus started it. You and I both know. Okay? All right, that, that, that ain't going to work, right? So James is sitting there, and man, that's got to be somewhat dysfunctional, right? Think about it. Mom and dad think my brother's God. Huh. You think James could have used some therapy? Man. He's a sibling. The younger brother... Of Jesus. Now here's the problem. He's a half-brother of Jesus. And notice, he becomes a believer only after the resurrection. Only after the resurrection. Wait a minute. After spending his entire life with Jesus, 
James did what might seem utterly impossible to do. He didn't believe. Jesus tells this truth in Mark 6, verses 3 and 4. We were just there, remember? He says, a prophet is not, with, is not without honor, meaning I'm honored everywhere else I go. I come back home and nobody honors me for who I am. Because in my hometown, amongst my relatives, and even in my own household, they don't buy it. They don't buy that I'm the son of God. And they take offense to it. James got angry. James is tired of hearing how Jesus is all that he says he is and is going to do all that he says he's going to do. And and James just grows weary of it. James had a front row seat to Jesus' life and he still did not believe. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Mark 3 real quick, page 839. Page 839, it'd be page 838, I'm sorry, page 838 in your pew Bibles. Jesus is preaching and teaching, a great crowd of people are around him. And in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says that Jesus came home. He's picked his disciples, so Jesus has come back to his hometown, and now he's got 12 disciples following him. They're all saying he's rabbi. They're all calling him the Messiah. He's got a whole a group of people following him and, and are hung on every one of his words. And, and he comes back to his home, and notice in verse 20, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. There's so many people, there was no way you could call the caterer in to take care of things. And when his family heard it, they went out to help me out there, seize him. Wait a minute. For they were saying he is out of his mind. So Jesus is doing his earthly ministry. Things are happening and his family hears about it. And they're like, wait a minute. Jesus has lost his mind. It was one thing when he was young to say what he did about himself and for mom and dad to say those things. But this Jesus that we know, he ain't the Messiah. He ain't the Savior. Surely he's not the Son of God. And they're like, we got to go get him. They were reading his Facebook posts and we're like, oh man, he's off his rocker. He's talking craziness. They love him enough that they go and say, hey, we got to silence him. we got to get him some help, get him some therapy, because if we don't, he's going to make a fool of himself and a fool of us, so let's go get him, let's seize him, because he's lost his mind. This is James, the author of this letter we're going to look at. He thinks for the whole part of his life into adulthood that his older brother is a madman who's lost all his marbles... And needs to be seized and taken away. But something happens. But something happens. This man who said that he had created the world, this man who was uh, the way to the Father, this man who said that he would pay for the sins of the world, this man who said he would judge the living and the dead, the family had heard all that and said, let's get this guy home. Everything changes around the time of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I want you to recognize that the strained family that we have of Jesus's life in John 19 25 if you remember Jesus is hanging on the cross and women are there and John uh, one of his disciples the youngest of the disciples is there and remember Jesus is on the cross and Jesus looks down to his mother Mary and he says my mother 
here is your son. And he says to James or to John, you take care of my mom. Why would Jesus put uh, Mary into the, if you will, custody and care of one of his disciples? And I'm going to tell you, I speculate a little bit. I believe because none of the other family members wanted anything to do with Jesus and mom. They were like, you know what? This is crazy. And so Jesus says, you know what? Hey, take care of my mom. Minister to her. Be with her, especially in these hours after I, I am gone. But something happens. Something changes. By the way, just really quickly, um, what a great opportunity for some encouragement. Maybe today you're the only person that's a Christian in your house. And you have been mocked and, and maybe abused. And maybe um, when you go to your, your family events, you're ridiculed for what you believe. I want you to notice today that based on what we know of Jesus, you're not alone. That Jesus felt that way. Jesus felt the sting of being the only guy that believed the way that he did. And he understands how you're feeling. He understands what you're going through. But that changes for James. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can just write this passage down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 7, we are told of the events that transpire after Jesus is resurrected from the grave. And after he presents himself to the people that are at the grave site, who see the empty tomb, who see the clothes folded, Jesus goes and appears to many different people. In fact, to 500, the scripture says, at one time. So lots of people saw the risen Savior. But I want you to know, in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, Jesus appears to his brother, James. And James is never the same. This guy that he ridiculed, this guy that he mocked, this guy that he was a skeptic of, he's never the same as a result of it because he had come face to face with the risen Lord and risen Savior and he would change the way he lives for the rest of his life. And that's a reminder for us today as have we met the risen Savior and Lord this morning? Are we a skeptic? Have we scoffed at the claims of Jesus? James did, and then he met the risen Lord, and he bowed the knee, and he said, you are not just my brother, but I am your servant, and I'm going to worship, and I'm going to serve you, because you're the God of the universe, and because I need your salvation. He was changed by the resurrection. In Acts 1, verses 12 through 15, we're told that uh, after Jesus has uh, resurrected from the grave, after he's ascended into heaven, that the, all the disciples are in the upper room. You've got the 12 minus Judas. You've got Mary and some women, meaning Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some women. And then in, in verses 12 through 15, we are told, and Jesus' brothers were there as well. And so James locks in, and he says, I'm going to be a follower of my brothers. I believe what he says to be true. And James will live his life, the entirety of his life, as a servant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Acts 15, write this passage down. We are told that the council of Jerusalem takes place, and this skeptic who becomes a believer after the resurrection of Jesus Christ now is a leader years later in the development of the early church. That James stands up amidst uh, uh, Peter and James and John. He stands before the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. 
James stands up and he speaks with authority to this group of people. And when he's done speaking in Acts 15, they say, let's do what James says. He goes from a skeptic to a leader, all because he was changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that same change can happen in your life as well. He becomes one who serves boldly on behalf of God in the church. He serves boldly. He's a leader of the church. In fact, in Galatians 2 verse 9, he's called a pillar of the church by the Apostle Paul. This is a one cool dude. This guy's got a great testimony. This guy should have gone on the motivational speaking tour. And he serves the church. And I want you to know he serves the church the very last moments of his life. We are told by Josephus, this first century secular historian, that James would be preaching in Jerusalem. The chief priests and the religious leaders of the day would become so enraged by what they heard about, about James that they would grab James, they would take him up to the pinnacle of the temple, the roof of the temple, they would tell him to denounce Jesus as Savior and Lord. When he refused to, they pushed him off the roof of the temple, thinking that he would die in the fall. He does not die in the fall, and people begin to pick up rocks and they begin to stone him. When he is stoned, they think that he should be dead by now. He hasn't died. In fact, he's articulating the words, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Lord, forgive them. For they do not know, they do not know what they are doing. And a man who makes sure his name is known, and, and Josephus points out who this man is, grabs a club and beats him to death over the head. It's seen in some art that we have. Here we have, if you look, James being thrown from the pinnacle, thrown down to the ground. The people begin to stone him, and then this individual takes a club and beats him. This is from the 13th century. Let's look at uh, another picture. This is another picture that comes, uh, I believe, from the 10th or 11th century. And again, the, the temple down to the ground, and then he's beaten. You can even see the blood coming from his head. This man lived with a real faith in Jesus Christ. And this guy wrote a book. He wrote a book for us to know and understand. Now, now here, now, buckle your seatbelts, okay? Who's he writing to? A scattered group of believers. To the 12 tribes scattered in the dispersion. Very quickly, these are what many believe to be Jewish believers. These are people who had followed the ways of God, but had come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, probably through the preaching of the disciples in Jerusalem. They're hanging out. They're enjoying the early church time, the fellowship, the doctrine of the apostles, all of the care that was taking place. And, and then something happens. In Acts chapter 7, we're told of the first martyr of Christianity, besides Jesus, of course, is Stephen. Stephen is preaching in Jerusalem on how Jesus has changed his life, and a man by the name of Saul says, kill him. Kill him. And they pick up stones, and they begin to stone him until he's stoned to death in uh, Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 8, we are told that a, per, a great persecution breaks out in Jerusalem where uh, religious leaders under the advisement of Saul, who would become one day after he sees the risen Savior, the Apostle Paul, would go house to house, door to door, and drive people from their homes who said that they were followers of Jesus Christ. These scattered group of believers, we're going to learn later on, were suffering from persecution. 
They were suffering persecution. We'll see that. That's why he starts it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. They're not dealing with uh, their fantasy football league not turning out the way they wanted it to. Their trial isn't that they're trying to lose weight and they can't lose those extra two pounds. They have been thrown out of their home, away from their families and friends. They've lost their property and they're running for their lives. And James writes this letter to wherever they may have been scattered and says, continue to fight the good fight. And these people needed spiritual direction. They needed spiritual direction. And so what we're going to see is their pastor starts speaking to them and teaching them what is it like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? How do we live amidst persecution? How do we live amidst temptation and trials? And he teaches them over and over and over again. It has been written or has been said that the book of James is the book of Proverbs in the New Testament, full and chock full of wisdom of how to live life. We're going to hit the ground here. This letter was written by a humble servant to a scattered group of believers showing them what real faith in action looks like. Here's where we're going. You're going to learn in this study of James that real faith is not just saying you're a Christian. It's not just saying that you did something in Sunday school years ago. But that your faith, if it's real, will be faith in action. And it's going to be seen in four things we're going to see. First of all, your compliance. Your compliance How good are you at obeying your master? James says, I'm a servant. And we're going to see and ask the question every week, how good am I following Jesus, my master? Am I complying? In 108 verses of the book of James, there are 59 commands that you are to follow. Let me tell you, James is paint by numbers for Christianity. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that, but do this, and you'll be on the right track. Number two, it's going to ask you about your conversation. James one twenty six says, if you think you're religious but can't keep a tight rein on your tongue, then you deceive yourself. And so we're going to learn that what we say, what comes out of our mouth, what we say about people and about things, has a direct determining factor on what's in our heart and what's going on with our faith. It'll be seen in our compliance, our conversation, our compassion. James one twenty seven. we are to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Do we have a love for people, a care for people? Do we show people mercy instead of wrath and anger? James is the book for us if we struggle with compassion or our conversation or our compliance. And finally, how about our conduct? James 1.27 says that we are to keep unstained by the sin of the world. So do you struggle with temptation? Is it hard for you not to go with the flow? Are you fighting and having struggles saying no to sin? Then James is going to be the book for you. Because it's going to teach us how to comply as servants, how to make sure our conversation is seasoned with grace, how to make sure our compassion is like that of Jesus who came to seek and to save that which was lost, and how we can live upright and holy lives until God comes back. In introduction to the book of James, I hope and pray that this helps you and whets the appetite as to where we're going to go. But we need to pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for the time that you've given me. I thank you for the patience of our people to sit under uh, teaching, Lord. I hope that by getting to know your little half-brother, that we may know more about you. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his diligence. Thank you for his honesty that he was once a skeptic and and after seeing you and coming face to face at you as the risen Lord and Savior, that he bowed the knee in submission to you. And I pray that that would happen today.
That, Lord, if, if someone here has not done that, that they wouldn't leave this place without talking with someone about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this book of James and what it's going to teach us as a church and as a people that we might become better servants of yours. Again, thank you for James' example. Now lead us out, Lord, to be servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.